So, glad you're here. We're in the book of Ephesians. We are working our way through the book of Ephesians. Uh, And this morning, we're going to be finishing up chapter 1 of Ephesians. So if you've got your Bible, head over that way. Um, The book of Ephesians is actually a letter that is uh, called an epistle. It's a word for letter. It's written by the Apostle Paul uh, from Rome to the church in Ephesus, uh, an ancient city. Uh, So if you're there, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 uh, is where we're going to be beginning. And, and as I read this, uh, you know, I want you following along. I want you seeing this. And I, and I want you to look for how Paul encourages his brothers and his, his sisters in this city, uh, his Christian brothers and sisters in the city. I want you to listen to the way that he prays for them and, and listen to this, the power and the authority that belongs to Jesus Christ, uh, who is our Savior. And it is presented in just a beautiful way here. Um, so we're just going to jump right into it. Uh, verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Almighty God, gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the preservation of it all these years. Thank you that we live in an era where we can read it in the morning. We're in the evenings in our homes. Thank you that we can hear songs of worship uh, saved on our phones and on the radios in our cars. Thank you that we can be in touch with each other over texts and phone calls. But God, this morning, I thank you that we can gather together in one room and worship you. Thank you for what we call corporate worship. Now, as we come to the portion of our worship for preaching your word, I ask that, that you give me joy to do so. And that you enlighten us, that you give us understanding, yes, illuminate our, our minds, soften our hearts, and may all distractions knocking on, our, on the doors of our minds this morning be turned away for the time being. It's in Jesus' great and holy name we pray. Amen. So the situation with, with Paul here is uh, that he's writing to Ephesus. You remember he was in Ephesus. He founded the church there when they originally were preaching the gospel. But it's now been many years since he's been back to Ephesus. Uh, and, you know, he's getting updates from time to time. Here's what's going on in Ephesus as people travel and such. It's, uh, uh, it's kind of like Laura and I, three years ago, we left Kansas City and our, our church there. Uh, and yet we still hear updates, you know, what's going on there in the lives of, of people and the lives of the church. And uh, it's always an encouraging thing to hear those kind of things. So, uh, as Paul begins this portion of the letter, he's, he's making clear that he's encouraged by what he has heard about the Ephesians. Uh, there's two statements here that are essentially 
uh, the two great commandments that Jesus gives in Luke 10.27, where, where he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, uh, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And so here, as Paul says, you know, I have heard of your faith in the Lord. He's, he's heard that they indeed do love the Lord. That's what that faith entails. He also says that I have heard of your love towards all the saints. You know, that's a, a love for, for neighbor and particularly for those neighbors who are brothers and sisters in the faith. So understand the, the significance of this, right? He's giving them this compliment. because, uh, and, and the truth is, there is no greater compliment in all the world than what we're seeing right here. I mean, if you just step back a minute and think about it, you know, what are the things you would love for, for someone to compliment you about? You're, you're a brilliant scholar. You know, you're an amazing dancer. You're, you're such a great musician. You're, you're the best cook, the greatest artist, a wonderful mom, an amazing athlete. You know, you're beautiful. Who didn't want to hear that? You know? Who didn't want to hear most of those things? And yet I, I'm telling you that there is really, truly no better compliment than what Paul gives to them in this statement here. You know, he, he's saying, you clearly love God, and, and you deeply love your brothers and your sisters in Christ. See, we're a, we're a transient town. Some of you have realized this uh, already. And uh, some of you are the transients, and yet we, we, we realize that through PCSing and graduation eventually, uh, that people leave from here. And, 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 and you know, if we think about it, if, if in your next church, you know, you spoke about Manhattan Press and you said, well, you know, that's a church that loves the Lord very well, and that's a church that loves each other very well, that'd be the absolute greatest compliment we, we could look to hear, we could hope to hear. Um, and so while I, I'll say this, you know, there is value in, in developing yourself as an athlete, as an artist, as a, a scholar, and, and whatever else. You know, God gives you a passion for anything like that. You know, those are good things. Uh, I hope that we never lose sight that the superior value of learning to love God and learning to love each other, um, that we keep that in view. And so... If we're going to take this call then to, to, to love our brothers and sisters very seriously, and we should be doing that, uh, then we need to know really what this love looks like, right? Love's one of those fuzzy words we use. You know, Valentine's is coming up. You're going to see it everywhere, the word love, and it's going to mean almost nothing the way we see it. And, and so you think about this, what does this word love mean, you know? And, and the first thing you think of is emotional, you know? Is this love an emotional love where you, you think of your, your brother or sister in the Lord and you just have that emotional uh, affection for them. Yeah, it's that, uh, for sure, but, but it's not only that, it's much more than that. You know, when you, when you think of the, the way that Jesus Christ modeled love for us, we see that he spent time with his disciples, we, we see that he served the disciples, we see that he actually uh, sacrificed his life, not only for the disciples, but for the entire church. And, and you see, uh, I know too many Christians in my life who, who read Christian books, great Christian books, who, who listen to preaching online, and, and, and even they, you know, go to worship week, you know, most weeks, and, and yet they have no real interaction with the church community that they're part of. And, and I don't say that as some sort of shaming of them, but this idea of it, it just makes me sad for them. Um, you know, the, the love that we have for each other ought to be one that is 
bringing us into each other's lives so that we, we celebrate together, so that we laugh together, so that we mourn together, so that we, you know, we can give stability to each other's lives when the ground beneath us begins to shift. And so if you find yourself this morning just you know, looking around this sanctuary, and if you're visiting, don't worry about that, but if you would find yourself, you've been here a while, you're looking around, and you realize, I don't really know anybody here, then it, it might be time for you to, to get out of your comfort zone. You know, it might be time for you to kind of let down walls and, and let others know you. It might be time to, to really go out of your way to get to know your, your covenant family in a way that is meaningful. And, and that might mean that you're asking someone out to a cup of coffee. That might mean uh, attending one of the small groups that we have. That might mean just loitering after worship. You know, that, that temptation to just take off sometimes. You know, just resist that and have a conversation with somebody. You know, and, and here's the deal. I don't, it won't happen instantly. Deep relationships don't happen immediately. Don't expect to do it once and that to simply happen. But, but understand that in doing those kind of things, you're laying this foundation for the kind of relationships where you can mutually be known and where you can mutually encourage each other. And I, and I say this, you know, again, not to guilt you into participation. You're at worship right now. I know I'm preaching the choir in that regard. We don't have a choir, but I'm preaching to you. Uh, and, and so there's this aspect that I understand you're at worship, and this is where we want you to be. But, uh, but I want you to also know that, that sharing in church community is a, is a path to joy for you. And it's one I desire for you. So here's the other thing about, about Paul's, Paul's compliment here. Um, Paul complimenting them doesn't mean they're doing it perfect. In fact, as we begin to, to go through the book further and, and further, we're going to see that uh, a bunch of this letter is actually correcting the Ephesians and teaching them how to love God and how to love each other uh, better. And, and the thing is here, though, that, that Paul is encouraging in these people's life the fruit that he does see. That's, that's huge. You know, the, the fruit in their lives that, that may be small, the fruit that may not be ripe yet, but, but praise the Lord that there is fruit. Um, you know, praise, praise the Lord if there's fruit on the tree and praise the Lord if there is spiritual fruit in our lives, no matter how small it might be. Uh, there's another application here. Uh, it's easy to miss. It's simple to miss. Um, it, it's good to verbally encourage fellow Christians when you see God working in their life, when you see them doing well. Um, and, in fact, you know, telling someone I'm, I'm thankful for you goes a very long way. Uh, you, you look around here on, on a Sunday morning and, and you see uh, the way people are serving you. People are, are freeing you to, to worship on Sunday morning. And, and no one's doing it for a thank you. But to hear I'm, I'm thankful for you using your gifts, for you giving your time, you know, that's a great encouragement to people. And we need to look for more opportunities to do that. Uh, the same is true outside of this building on a Sunday morning, you know. Do you, do you encourage your friends when you see God at work in their lives? You know, Jim, you know, Jim, when Bob spoke hurtful words to you this morning, uh, you responded with great patience. You know, I can see the Holy Spirit at work in your life, Jim. You know, those kind of statements. Those of you that are married, you encourage your, your spouses verbally. Or you just assume they know. You got children, you encourage your children, you know, particularly, you know, with the fruit that you see in their life, but really anything that's praiseworthy. Just remember, we don't praise merely for perfection. We, we're praising where God is, is making improvements for the small fruits of the spirits in life, you know. For, for the student who's been making 60s over and over again, 
That 75 is reason to celebrate hugely. Uh, it really is. And, you know, for the, for the child that's, that's struggling to share any of their, their stuff with their siblings, you know, that one M&M is reason to rejoice and to, to celebrate with them, to encourage them, you know. And I tell you this because I think our temptation is to think, well, you didn't give half of them. You're still being incredibly selfish. No. Celebrate where you see the fruit, no matter how small. Uh, and what Paul is, is saying here is, is on par with that, that modern statement that sometimes weirds us out. You know, I, I'm proud of you. I, I'm proud of you. I don't know how many people I've talked to later in life when that's the only thing they, they really wanted to hear from one of their parents is, I'm, I'm proud of you. Um, don't, don't let those words go un, unspoken to those in God has placed in your life. Um, so we then learn in this text then that, that Paul prays for them, right? And, and we get to see the content of, prayer, of Paul's prayer. He includes it here. And he's asking that, that he give these Christians a spirit of wisdom. And he's asking that he give them a spirit of revelation and the knowledge of him. Okay, sounds weird. It's not a prayer for new revelation. Uh, what he's praying for is that they would recognize that they would believe the scriptures where God gives knowledge of himself. Um, it's like First uh, Thessalonians 2.13 speaks of this. It says, there Paul's writing and he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it, what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. See, that's, that's why um, this, this prayer, you know, and, and, and that's why as this prayer continues then, Paul is, is asking that, that God would enlighten the eyes of their heart. Enlighten the eyes of their heart. That's one of those chocolate fudge statements, you know. It's, it's a little bitty statement. There's so much in it. Uh, so rich. But what does it mean? Um, the text is actually very helpful in explaining it. You know, the text explains what will happen if, if God does enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Um, it says, we'll know what the hope to which God has called us to. That's the first part. And, and, and this is a prayer that, that, that will have eyes to see the world as it really is, and not just the way that, that the world appears through our, our, our ordinary sight. Um, you know, the, the things of God are not plain to everyone. They're just not. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. See, uh, Matthew 13, 13, you, you see the same idea again. There, Jesus is, is speaking to the disciples, and, and he's explaining this difference between head knowledge and, and heart knowledge. And, and he says this, he says, That's why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see. Seeing, that the first word where it's seeing is this, this reference to understanding in our mind. Um, for instance, you know, a, a statement um, in, in Scripture, you know, Jesus is Lord. Anyone can understand that at the most basic level. Everyone on the planet can, can hear that and make sense, that that's telling you that, that Jesus is in charge, that he's the master, that he is the authority. That's a, an easy thing. Anyone can understand. However, um, when you think about Matthew 13, 13, you know, the, the word see, the second instance that you see the word see there, it's, it's in regards to, to heart knowledge. And, and so that it's saying this, it's saying um, seeing head knowledge, they do not see heart knowledge. 
um, to believe in your heart that, that Jesus Christ is in fact the Lord, to believe that he is your Lord, that, that God's, that's God-given knowledge there, right? That's the enlightening of our hearts that we need to be able to see that and believe that. And what's interesting is that, that Paul is so confident in this that he's writing to Christians. This is kind of a surprise to me. And, and yet he also assumes this statement, right, that, that they, like we, need the eyes of their hearts enlightened. And so it's not just for the immediate understanding of the gospel, but it's an ongoing way that we approach God and his word. Because, um, you know, if you're like me, some days you open your Bible and, and you're in there and you're reading. And you're like, yeah, I'm in my Bible. And it just feels like, like maybe it's the instruction manual to your refrigerator. Um, you know, oh, we have a, we have a crisper drawer. I wonder what that's for. Um, you know, you just miss the, the amazing aspect of that. And that's why, you know, this is an ongoing prayer and, and an ongoing prayer that we ought to be praying ourselves, you know, that we begin our days with this prayer when we, uh, you know, God open or God enlighten the eyes of my heart. And we do that so that we can approach the word of God, yes, with reason, use your head, but, but also with God-given faith to believe it. Um, often before the sermon... Imagine preaching on this. Of course I did today. But often before the, the sermon, I, I pray that God does indeed enlighten our minds or illuminate our minds or soften our hearts, something along those lines, uh, you know, that, we, that we'd understand his word, that we'd hear it and being preached and receive it and trust it and delight in it. That's what I desire for myself. That's what I desire for us as a church. And I encourage you to do the same thing at home. You know, when you open your, your Bible and you're, you're finding it hard to do particularly, but always, you know, begin with that prayer that, um, that the Holy Spirit would enlighten your eyes of your heart so that when you read this, you know, that you would understand it's God's word. You know, pray. Pray like we see the psalmist in Psalm 119.18 pray. Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And so then... In verses 18 and 9, or 19 rather, 18 and 19, uh, Paul is asking here for God to make the church, to make the Christians, uh, to know three things. And these are the three parts of his prayer. Um, and, and they're all related to that enlightening of the eyes of our hearts. You know, each of these aspects of his prayer then, uh, you see in the text, begins with that word, what? Uh, and so first he prays that we would know what the hope God has called us to, or what is the hope God has called us to. That's that's the gospel. Um, that's what that's referring to. And, and you have this question, if that's the gospel, then why is it called a, a, a hope? And the reason is that, that hope is future. Hope has us looking for something that hasn't happened yet. You know, hasn't been fulfilled completely yet. Um, Chicago Cubs fans, right? They didn't spend the last 108 years hoping for the, for the championship that they won in 1908. Uh, you know, that, that happened already. They weren't hoping for that one. They were hoping for the next one. Um, they were hoping for a, a new series championship. And you see, we tend to put our hope in, in both uh, two problems with the things we put our hope in. One is that uh, we do it in uncertain things, things that we don't know if it's going to happen. Uh, and we do it in things that are temporary, things that are here today, gone tomorrow, and don't really matter. And you think about it, they're not all bad things, they're just things we shouldn't put our hope in. You know, a, a romantic relationship, uh, maybe it's professional success or wealth or beauty or, or championships. Um, you know, in, in, in the proper context, all those things are, are fine. Uh, to give effort to, 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 to them is no big deal, but 
they're only going to let you down if you look to them to be your deepest hope. And if you look to them to be your deepest hope, they absolutely will let you down. Uh, you see, the only satisfying, the only trustworthy hope is the gospel and uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the hope of the gospel is distinct from all those other things because, uh, from all those other hopes, because it is absolutely certain and because it is eternal. You will find nothing else to hope in that, that meets those two criteria. And, and that's why, you know, no matter what your past looks like, no matter what your life looks like today, you know, you're coming in, you hear something like this, and it can be discouraging, but, but, but the truth is there is real and satisfying hope that is offered to us in the gospel as, as we look to Jesus with faith and with hope. And then Paul goes on to the second thing. Paul prays for us to have hearts to see the riches of God's inheritance in the saints. Now, we saw the concept of inheritance last week. Verses 11 and, and 14 speak of the inheritance, but in those instances, it's talking about the, the inheritance as we as Christians receive, right, from God. In this case, it's flipped around. Uh, this time, the, the church, that is, Christians, are the inheritance that God receives. That sounds a little weird, right? Um, I really was trying to get my head around this, and I, uh, I'm going to share something, because I was reading from a guy named Ligon Duncan, and it really helped me to understand this. Uh, and it did so by, by presenting this imaginary conversation. This is imaginary. Um, conversation between the Father and the Son before the foundation of the world. And as they have this conversation about the, uh, about the unfolding plan of redemption, the, the Son says to the Father, Father, what is it you want out of this great redemptive expedition in which you will give your son and I will give myself freely in order to redeem sinners from certain destruction and just condemnation. What is it you want? And the father replies, my son, there is a thief on a cross that I want. And there is a prostitute who will one day anoint your feet that I want. And there is a self-righteous man who will persecute me that I want. And there are beggars and lepers and outcasts, and there are even some Kansas State students and some men and women and children in Manhattan, Kansas, that I want. That's what I want for myself. I, I choose them as my inheritance. You begin to see that, right? I mean, it really changes the outlook on life in, in so many ways when we, when we truly realize that we belong to God. That we are his, his chosen inheritance in that regard. You know, if, you're, if your faith is in Christ, then you are indeed a child of God. You are God's inheritance. And this really means that, you know, uh, we relate to the world differently from that day forward. Because there's, there's nothing that we really need from the world. Nothing. See, we no longer need the world's uh, approval. We no longer need their praise. And so when we get teased or made to look foolish for, for valuing what God values, sexual purity, uh, sanctity of life, serving others, humility, meekness, um, you know, when, those, when, the, when the world sneers at some of the things that God finds valuable, we can remember, you know what, I, I belong to God. I don't, I don't need your approval. I don't need your praise. And it's not just that we don't care what anyone thinks. That's not the idea here, but but that we're no longer slaves to the opinions of our classmates, of our, our peers, because we belong to God. And, and so we find ourselves, you know, I, I care deeply but what someone thinks of me, but it's only what God thinks of me. 
and he calls me his. You know, in, in short, this is a, a prayer for Christians to know what it is to, to rest in Jesus. Because in our, our union with, with Christ, we are absolutely treasured by God. And the third focus that Paul's prayer here is, is that our, our, you know, in that our, our enlightened hearts know the power of God for us. Um, you know, Paul words it beautifully there in verse 19, uh, that we know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe. And he goes on to explain it. You know, this is the same power that, that, that you're rather the same power that Paul is praying to, to work wonders in you and I. The same power has already worked wonders in, in the life and, and work of Jesus Christ. This, this power has raised him from the dead. This, this power has seated him in the place of honor at the right hand of God the Father. And, and it's easy to miss things sometimes when we read quickly through these. Uh, you know, it's, it's just in passing, but there's this, this glimpse of the throne room here. It's almost like you're, you're walking past a doorway and you just get this glimpse as you turn your head to look in for a moment. Uh, and, and what do we see when we, when we look in? Is this picture that, that Jesus is not, not standing. Jesus is not kneeling, but, but he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And this is hugely significant because in the old temples, in the Old Testament, where the sacrifices were made, there were no seats. And there were no seats simply because the, the sacrifices of the priests never stopped. Constantly, constantly, constantly. You know, there were, there were always more sacrifices needing to be made, but, but Jesus is now sitting because his sacrifice was a once-for-all perfect sacrifice done. You know, that's, that's why Hebrews 10, 11, and 12 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. See, unlike all the inferior priests before him, Jesus sits because he has completed it. He completed what they never could complete. And then our, our passage then just launches into this, this rocket ship kind of praise for Jesus. This exaltation of, of Christ. You know, this series of statements that is covering everything that we know in regards to power and authority. And, you know, Jesus is, is greater than everything. If you look at verse 21, he's, he's above all rule. He's above all authority, all power, all dominion. He's above every name. All things are under Jesus' feet. And that is an unmistakable symbol for authority. You know, a, a quick application of this is that it becomes very clear that we are to look, uh, who we are to look to for how to live this life that we have been gifted with. You know, you always ask that question, you know, am I to obey the government? Well, yes, you are. Uh, unless that government requires you to disobey Christ, who is the ultimate authority. You know, at some point, children begin to wonder, you know, am I supposed to obey my parents? Well, yes, you absolutely are. Unless your parents are asking you to do something that violates what God has revealed in his word, um, if they're asking you to sin. You see, that's, uh, and here's the deal, that's a, a personal application. And while there is, there is a genuine individual aspect of our relationship with Christ, what we, what we see here in, in, this, in this anthem of divine authority is that the focus isn't on Christ being given as head of you personally. That's not the focus in this passage, is it? But, but given to you as a collective member of God's people, as the church. The power of, of Christ is for his church, and that includes you, but it's not only you. See, this is, is shown in this, this wonderful image of, uh, of a head and a body, which hopefully all of you know what that means, right? Head and body. You've seen this, right? Uh, 
I'm not the body. Not even in this, this illustration, although myself, I'm, I'm like a, a hair on the pinky maybe, right? Uh, a small part of this body that is the church. And, and each of us is a part of the body of Christ, you know, that's the church. And, and just as your body needs to be connected to your, uh, your head to actually function right, so we must be united to Christ, uh, our head, if we're going to be able to be alive and functioning. Colossians 1.18 says just about the same thing. It says, and, and Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And Paul's point here is that we are united to the one who is above every earthly power. That's our head. You know, every authority, both in, in this age and the age to come, that's this, this ultimate authority that we're united to. He is Lord. And, and yet we share his honor because we are united to him. It's a hard thing, I think, to realize that you have the honor of Christ because of your union with him. You know, if, if Jesus is our head, then um, it, it really makes it clear what we as the church, uh, where we're to receive our, our direction, our focus, our, our purpose. You know, you, you might have noticed in the, in the course of your life, your, um, your arm does whatever your head tells it to do, you know. Uh, it's silent and works in such an amazing way, you don't realize it, but, you know, hand touched the pulpit. Um, that's kind of what's happening. And, and you can imagine, you know, what, um, you know, we, we're thankful for that because you can imagine if that was not the case, you know, and you, you go to meet somebody and you think you'll put your hand out, but suddenly your arm decides to feel their ear, you know, and it starts feeling around them, oh, you have fuzzy hair. And, and you just sit there and, you know, apologize. I'm sorry, hand doesn't really listen, does what it wants. Uh, you know, that would be incredibly awkward. Um, really weird or you know you can imagine I'm sitting here uh, trying to preach to you and suddenly my hand just grabs my face you know um, sorry guys my hand has different priorities today that'd be a miserable way to live and, and the thing is Jesus is Lord we, we as the church don't don't always acknowledge that lordship and, and those times when we don't acknowledge the lordship and come up with our own ideas our own focus our own uh, things that we think the church should be spending their efforts on we end up looking just as stupid as I looked with my hand on my face a second ago. That, that's what it looks like. Um, you see, in the eternal scheme of things, though Jesus is Lord and his authority reigns absolutely supreme. There, there is no might that rivals the power of God. And, and that power that, that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power at work in you and I. That, that's the, the encouragement that Paul wants to give us in verse 19 here when he's saying that, that this is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. What I've always been amazed about with, with the church then is, is the way that the church just pervades all cultures, all times. You, know, you, you look at history and, and you begin to, uh, to, to read about these nations and so many different things. You know, nations that have risen to power and, and then been relegated to the dusty pages of just history books, right? Um, dictators have found great power only, only to be defeated by some greater power and, you know, reduce them to rubble of some sort. Philosophies have, have given short-term hope only to be to disappoint and then be replaced by new philosophies that are sure to fail as well. And yet, yet what has been steady and constant in every time in a myriad of cultures and under every government from dictator to democracy is that Christ's church lives on. The people of God have continued to gather to worship the Lord no matter their circumstances, uh, to proclaim hope to wayward sinners and, and to gather to worship no matter what powers seek to stop us. 
And, and that's going to be true tomorrow, you know. You look at unrest in the world, and the one thing you shouldn't worry about is whether the church is going to exist. You know, uh, day after day, uh, even, uh, you know, from this day forward, uh, you know, tomorrow, every single day, it's going to be true that until the Lord returns and sets all things right, the church will gather together and worship him. The, the people of God have, in the past, you know, gathered in catacombs. They've gathered in scary basements. They've gathered at strange times in the middle of the night and under great threat just for the sheer pleasure of worshiping God and, and being together. And that is such a, a beautiful thing for us to, to know when we think about our, our brothers and sisters around the world, you know. And, and my, my hope is that, that we too would have the, the same love to, to gather together and worship the Lord week after week. Even though you don't have to sneak around at 3 in the morning to get here. Um, so the last bit here that we see in our text is, is this vague statement in verse 23 saying the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Um, it's a difficult statement to understand. Uh, John 1, 16 says something real similar. It says that uh, the grace that we receive is, is from the fullness of Christ. It says, uh, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And looking at this text, uh, uh, Brian Chappell explains it great. I'm just going to quote him here. He says, Jesus is changing the world for the good of the church uh, by the means of the church. You get that? Jesus is, is changing the world for the good of the church by the means of the church. And so the filling of the world with Christ's purpose and, and through the church is the corporate hope that we all possess. See, the grace that we have received from Christ, we, we then take into the world. And in the message of the gospel. And that's what we're looking at to see God make transformation. Uh, okay, so one last story I want to close with. And to be honest, I hate it when people tell you stories as if they're absolutely true and they know it for sure. I don't know the historical accuracy of this. Uh, but it puts the supremacy of, of Christ in proper perspective. Uh, it's, a, it's a story about uh, Leonardo, not the Ninja Turtle, but uh, Da Vinci. Have you heard of him? He had a well-known painting, um, The Last Supper, which I think is actually on that, underneath that. Uh, and, and in this painting, if you're familiar with it, uh, Jesus and the disciples are gathered together, and, and they're having the Passover meal. This is going to be the last meal that they have together uh, and, until the, the, the supper later, um, before Christ is put to death on the, in this instance. And, and if you're familiar with the picture, again, you know that, that picture of Jesus. His hands are outstretched, and you know what's in his hands? Nothing. Um, they're open. They're outstretched and they're empty. And, and the story is that da Vinci dedicated three years to this painting because he was determined that this was going to be his crowning work, you know, the greatest thing he'd ever done. And, and it was finished in 1498. And before the unveiling, uh, he decided to show it to a friend whose opinion he, he valued. And, and so the friend came in and, and looked at the painting and just began to praise him. This is beautiful. I love it. And, and he said, you know, the, the, the cup in Jesus' hand is particularly beautiful. And the friend went on to, to describe the details of the cup and just how wonderfully Leonardo had, had painted this. And, and da Vinci was, was disappointed in hearing this. And so uh, after the friend left, he began to paint the picture, paint the cup out of the painting. And later when his friend saw the finished work, he was absolutely astonished to find that the cup was missing because the friend loved the cup. And he asked da Vinci for an explanation of this. And da Vinci responded simply by saying, nothing must distract from the figure of Christ. Nothing must distract from the figure of Christ. And, and that's our life right there. You know, always making 
much of Christ who is our, our head. Always making much of Christ who is, who is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You know, who has accomplished salvation for us and who prepares an eternal home for us. That's our life. You know, may the Lord Jesus Christ be, be glorified in all that we do. Let's pray.